And good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, October 25th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Jew Hate and Josh. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, Royal <laughs> Rev of Radio. <laughs> uh, good morning. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, I t- I, Josh, I know Josh's expressions by now when he's in favor of something I'm saying and when he just disagrees. And I know that um, I mean, when I was emphatically saying no aid for Ukraine, I mean, I could look in Josh's face and it was like, yeah, you know, give me a high five through the glass. When I started talking about Israel and my biblical worldview, he kept giving me an out. And Josh's out for me was, I understand, and you admitted that your biblical worldview influences, um, but, but he's never been on board with me here. I just sense. We've been in lockstep, Reb. Um, you and I and Josh on Ukraine, mm-hmm. you and I are kind of in lockstep on Israel, mm-hmm. but um, Josh has not quite gotten there yet, um, and we're going to allow him to express himself as the show progresses, but I want to get the wheels turning before he says something he may he may regret, because <laughs> even he said, hey, man, some of my stances may be controversial enough to get us in trouble. Well, I mean, that's kind of what talk radio does. It, it, it teeters on... Getting in trouble, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in Stay all honesty, in trouble a lot of I mean, I got to believe of all the letters the FCC sends, they aren't sending most to country music DJs, <laughs> right? Yeah, a little less uh, controversy. I mean, I mean, it it right. would probably be those who yeah. host radio show, talk shows and, yep. and allow people to express opinions, and they give their opinions, and um, some of those opinions are out there, um, so to speak. But that's one thing we've always insisted, that we're going to let opinions, however different they may be, um, be considered. Maybe not mainstream, but be be considered. 843-661-0937 is our number. Real quick, I want to go back, uh, and we're not spending much time on sports. Rev's dream came true. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a Diamondbacks uh, Rangers. Rangers World Series yep. instead of a Phillies um, Astros Astros yeah. World Series. Yeah. I, I was more about wanting the Phillies to lose and the Astros to lose, and it actually came true. The majority of prognosticators to begin with um, said the odds are the Orioles and Braves. It went from right. Orioles and Braves to Astros <laughs> and Phillies. It went from Astros and Phillies to um, Diamondbacks and Rangers. And, and I'll say this, and, and, and I think Major League Baseball has considered this. The Braves-Dodgers-Orioles series was pretty obvious. One team was just out of it. I mean, they were just not inspired, ready, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the routine, whatever. Whatever reason, three the best three teams in the regular season just appeared to take a pass on the postseason. These two series, and I watched a little, I mean, they were intense. They were good. I mean, they, they were highly competitive. I mean, it was back and forth, one big hit, one big play, one big out. I mean, it's kind of what you want playoff baseball to be like. And I thought about it, the Phillies, and, I mean, the, 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 the Phillies and Rangers and Astros and Diamondbacks never stopped playing baseball. I mean, that every game difference. got bigger. I mean, every game the next day and, the, you know, the day off was a, a bigger day off. And I'll say this, as a Braves fan, if you think Atlanta has sports fans, you should be embarrassed. <laughs> Go to Philadelphia. I mean, it, Philadelphia oh, has yeah. just the craziest sports fans <laughs> in the world. They'll do their own players in yeah, the second. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've always heard the Philly fans and the Eagles fans and the, the 76ers fans um, I mean, there are a lot of famous sports towns up in Boston, Chicago, New York would be uh, a famous sports town, but no fan base turns their own, turns on their own 
like the uh, the Philadelphia, excuse me, the Pennsylvania. Well, I guess Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh would be a little bit different. But yeah, the Philadelphia fans have historically um, turned on their own team when given not ample opportunity, half a chance, and they're uh, they're booing the starting pitcher because he, you know, got got gave up two hits in the eighth inning after throwing a three hitter. <laughs> right, like, dude, really? Okay, but that's just um, that's Philly. That's Philly sports fans. Um, so the Diamondbacks, eighty-four wins. In that's, the World that's Series, their, no, that's their record. Eighty-four wins this season, but they're in the World and Series. In the World yeah, Series, see, that's just the um, the finicky nature of the game of baseball. Yeah. And, um, and and I can't take anything away from the Phillies, the Diamondbacks, the Astros, or the Rangers. Once again, um, I watched a little, and it got. I mean, it, it was good baseball. I mean, it was really yeah, good. I agree. Intense postseason uh, baseball. I do want to thank the latter Rotarians yesterday for inviting me to speak. Um, I don't think anybody jumped out of the second floor window after my <laughs> Did dissertation. Um, well, I mean, we just went down the road of the economy, and I think we talked about, I mean, th- th- there are several really, really smart people that I read and follow. And Josh, this will play into what you and I were talking about, that have a very, uh, a vast understanding of the world. They're not propagandist. They're not in it for the money. I mean, they're very comfortable in their own skin. And when they write things or say things, I pay attention. I mean, I really and truly do. Um, they they are all beginning to, in somewhat lockstep, not, not, not we're exactly the same place at exactly the same time, but they're beginning to say things like, um, well, let me, Bill Ackman. Uh, Ackman had three tweets. And one of the tweets said, you know, the yield curve or the five-year bond, you know, the yield on a five-year bond or 10-year bond, 10-year treasury uh, exceeded 5%. The mortgage rates at about 8%. Uh, he went into some, I don't know, uh, extensive articulation of why he believes that's very problematic. And then he combines the concerns of the world around us. Guys, we've sent about uh, $200 billion um, so far. We're, we're, I'm talking about Israeli funding, Ukrainian funding, and Taiwan. I mean, you know, some of the um, some of the funding and debate of funding makes the headlines. Should we or should we not send more money to Ukraine? That's been a pretty hot button item. Uh, some of the country says yes, others say no. Um, we tried to explain yesterday a little bit. Had a good caller call in about warm water ports and some of the uh, some of the vast resources in in Russia. Um, I want to clear up something. I didn't say that Russia was a gas station masquerading as a nation. John McCain said that. Russia has an abundance of natural resources, not just oil, a lot of mineral deposits that are of great value. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a big, big, sprawling country. Um, it, it's, it's, it's climate isn't the best, but they have an abundance of mineral resources that the world needs. I mean, there's a demand for mining. It's not just oil. So um, when I said... I think I said clearly John McCain referred to Russia, yeah, uh, the former Soviet Union, as a gas station masquerading as a uh, as a nation. And then we had the debate about, you know, trying to become a nuclear superpower again. They've never lost that status. Uh, but they've always been a nuclear superpower um, in excess of, I went back last night and looked, in excess of 6,000 nuclear warheads, more than America, um, about 1,712 deployable missiles. But those are missiles that have already been armed with a nuclear warhead ready to launch at a moment's notice. Um, we're at about 1780 or 90. We got about uh, 200 less nuclear warheads, about 150 or 60 more 
um, nuclear weapons. So, you know, Russia trying to put the band back together, uh, well, the guitar's laying against the wall, and the drums are still where the drums were. You know, m- maybe the, the actors are different and the prospects are different, but, but it's not about Russia trying to become a nuclear superpower. They are still a very, very threatening um, nuclear superpower. But, but I went and I read some of the Bill Ackman tweets, read some of his narratives, and his concern is the, the, the coming financial storm combined with the potential for World War III. And I don't say that hyperbolically. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm reading Ackman. I'm reading some of these others that I pay close attention to. There is a funding measure on the table in the Senate today that includes $100 billion for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. I mean, that bill has been, that, that, that submission has been made by the White House. McConnell has signed off. Remember yesterday, we talked a little bit about disconnecting the Israeli funding. I think the majority of senators would vote to send you know, whatever amount of money to Israel. We don't have it, but let's send it anyway. I mean, if we're going to send borrowed money, let's send it to borrowed money uh, to places that are our staunch and, and loyal allies. Um, I may be opposed, Josh, and after reading and, and, and kind of perusing the Internet, I may be opposed to any military support. I'm, I, mean, it, I, I'm I, okay I, I just that. look at our ballot sheet. I look at the bottom line. I look at where the nation is today. And what is coming mean, our way? Sorry, guys, we can't afford it. Well, I mean, basically, well, I mean, yeah, but that, you know, we said yesterday. I mean, if you go on vacation, if the three of us went on vacation tomorrow, Josh went to the Grand Canyon, Rev went to Disney World, and I went to Madison Square Garden, and somebody said you can stay anywhere you want to, forget the cost, doesn't matter. I would imagine we'll stay at somewhere like a Ritz Carlton, but the reality is, all three of us are going to have a budget. And depending on my funding cycle, (laughs) that's always particular when, you know, because I don't, I mean, my life is a little bit different. I don't get a a paycheck the same amount every, every single week. We hit a lick and then we live off that for a while. Then we don't hit a lick and we starve on that for a while. That's always been uh, my life. So, so, you know, if the three of us were given a, um, go on Google and find a hotel you want to stay in and don't worry about what it costs. I mean, I'd probably call from Madison Square Garden's or from New York City's Ritz-Carlton, and Rev would be at the, the Grand Floridian or whatever, mm-hmm. one of the most expensive on-site hotels. Mm-hmm. Josh would be, you know, at the Ritz-Carlton overlook at the Grand Canyon. But but the reality is we've got a budget. And you've got to live True. within your means or, or, you know, try to live within your means as best you know how. And I just think the country is about to the point of having to live within its means and having to say no to some of these people and, um, you know, the three point eight billion dot five point eight billion that is a line item in our in our defense spending anyway that's not a special appropriation I mean that's kind of a line item Raytheon gets this you know McDonald Douglas gets this Israel gets this um, you know uh, and what what is it what what are what are the what is the uh, that there's some bunker in the middle of the country and they get X you know this um underground central planning I uh, can't think of what the name of it is you've seen it sixty minutes at a big expose on it about how secure and um, tightly watched it is. And um, I, I just, I'm thinking about the, and here's my concern. And this is what a lot of the really smart people in America, there's a lot of government debt that is going to reset in January, February, and March. I mean, there are hundreds of billions of dollars, well, probably a couple of trillion dollars in federal debt 
that was financed at about two and a quarter percent, its new rate is going to be about five, five and a half, maybe six percent, depending on what what the Fed does. And I mean, that's going to really, I mean, that's going to be the moment in time that the the service, the interest on the debt exceeds a trillion dollars. It's not, I mean, forget borrowing more money. The refinancing of the debt we've already borrowed and owed is going to have to be reset at new finance charges, at new interest rates, and those new interest rates will create about another $200 billion in annual interest payments. That gets us north of a trillion dollars in simply servicing debt. Maybe that's the catalyst. Maybe when the interest payment alone, when the annual interest payment on our debt, not deficit, on our debt, exceeds a trillion dollars, that may be the flashing light that everybody that knows what they're talking about and saw this coming because Carl Icahn said six or eight or 10 years ago, we know where we're headed. But there is no, there is no alternative. It is the financial abyss. It is a financial meltdown unlike any we've ever seen, but all of us are riding a party bus. Quantitative easing, the Fed activism, you know, one, two, three percent interest rates. I mean, it's 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 hard to stop drinking when every time you turn around, somebody's offering you the best bottle of bourbon you've ever had in your life. I mean, it's real hard to say no, thank you to that Pappy Van Winkle. No, thank you to the best. You know, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it, it's easy to. It, it's yeah, who's easy. Gonna, to, who's going to be the first to jump off the well, train? Carl Icahn said. Carl Icahn said, "Not me." Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm in it to make money. And as long as the Fed keeps interest rates this low with the government borrows money, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be money to be made. And, and I just think, and maybe that is, I mean, maybe that's the number that kind of, kind of breaks our back and we begin having to seriously address. I think there's a lot to the speaker's race. I think the speaker's race is a reflection of a broken government. I mean, when you think about it, you guys can't even elect a speaker. Well, I mean, the government's broken. I mean, if the government is sincerely and truly broken and incompetent and can't deliver for its people, why would you expect a speaker's race to be water poured out of a bottle? Why would you want that to be the case? I mean, if you believe the government's broken, wouldn't you want a four-week or five-week or six-week ordeal to get a speaker elected? Isn't that a true reflection on the state of America? I mean, if we elected a speaker in a day or two or three, it's as if everybody says everything's fine here. Nothing to see here. Move along. Move along, Americans. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Bobby in Hartsville. Morning, Bobby. Good morning, guys. I got two things this morning. Number one, I got a question for you, Ken. Uh, do you know how many how many of the 14 games that were just played in the World Series was won at home? Ooh, in the playoffs, I think in the these, ALCS, in these, in this last, the away yeah, this team last won all the. Yeah, I think in the American League, every the every game was won by the road team. If I'm not mistaken, you can go back and check me. All of them, National League and American League. Oh wow! wow. Yeah, I just looked it up, and if I look, if I saw correctly, because I had heard this, and uh, last night before that last game, it was that was the case, and then of course they won away last night, so should be all fourteen. Um, main thing I called about was a new poll that was, uh, that came out and it says, uh, 26% of the 
age 18 to 24 believes the solution to the Israeli-Palestine conflict is for Israel to, and this is quotes, to end, be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Also, it says nearly three in 10 said that the U.S. should back Hamas in the conflict. Uh, please tell me that Josh has not won this cheering in this kind of uh, polling. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate that. The, the Harvard Harris, a little bit of irony there. The Harvard Harris poll says that 48% of 18 to 24 year old Americans side with Hamas, not Palestine, not the Palestinians, Hamas, mm, the terrorist over Israel, organization. The terrorist. I'm wow. the terrorist. Wow. But forget, I mean, there is a very legitimate debate to be had, Josh, about Palestine and Israel. Oh, yeah. Or the Palestinians and the Jews. I mean, it is a, that, that is a complicated debate. You would accept that. I would accept that. Rev would accept that. I don't know the answer. I don't know what is fair. There you go. That's a better word. I don't know what's fair for the Palestinians or Jews. I mean, that, that's in the eye of the beholder. But there's no way that, that every 18 to 24-year-old American should condemn Hamas and Hezbollah. They're terrorist organizations. They're, they're Islamic jihadist. They would cut your head off. And that's the, you're talking about irony. I mean, the 18 to 24-year-old Americans who support Hamas over uh, Israel, they, Hamas would cut their heads off. I mean, that, that death to the infidels. I didn't say Palestinians. I think we've got to make that distinguishment. It's not about Palestine and, and Israel. There is no Palestine. I mean, there are Palestinians and they're Jewish, and there's an argument about land, and it's, and it's, 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 it's much older than I am, and I'm sure it'll be here long after I'm dead and gone if, if God decides to let the planet keep doing its thing for as long as he chooses to let it do its thing. But but the Harvard-Harris poll, and I just, re, I mean, I thought, okay, Harvard, because we argue about this elite college, the media, uh, pipeline, they kind of create the narrative, the majority professors at elite universities, and I've got to start doing this. I mean, I, I've got to start being careful not to lump higher education all in the same vein. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think there are solid universities out there that try to create some degree of diversity. They don't, but they try. I mean, the majority of, of academics are liberal. The majority of academia is liberal. The majority of faculty lounges. Donald Trump ain't winning a faculty lounge anywhere in America, right? I mean, I guess Hillsdale College, he may, but, but that would be it. Maybe Bob Jones in Greenville. But, but I think I've got to be careful to distinguish the, 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 the University of South Carolina, Clemson, France. I mean, I understand they're liberal. Please, please, please don't call and say, are, are you claiming that the University of South Carolina is conservative? No. I mean, my daughter goes there. She has taped a couple of things her professor has said. Extremely liberal. But they're not off the chain. They're not like some of these elite universities. By that, I'm talking about Ivy League plus Stanford plus, you know, several others. And that's where the majority of influence comes from. I mean, the majority of government is influenced not by graduates of USC, Clemson, Francis, Marion, and Coastal, but rather Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Harvard and uh, Cornell and Columbia. I mean, that, those are the people that leave those prestigious universities and they go to work in government or they go to work in the media and they shape the narrative. They control the narrative. Um, in my humble opinion, they mislead the American public into believing this is true and that's not. But, but. Young people today, and Josh, I'll get your take on this. To me, and I'm not saying you because I think you're an exception. 
I mean, you're producing a conservative radio show in Florence, South Carolina as a 25-year-old. That's a different path. I mean, you're, you're very unique in that regard. But it seems to me that college has been uber successful in creating the belief amongst young graduates, impressionable minds, malleable minds, that the world is not about right and wrong, good and evil. It's about oppression and victim. There are those who have been oppressed and those who wish to oppress. As a result of that oppression, they are victims. So forget good and evil. Forget right and wrong. Forget good and bad. It's about the oppressors. And I I think elite universities, I've never been to a class at an elite university. I've never walked the campus. Well, I have. I walked the campus of Vanderbilt. And I guess Vanderbilt, to some degree, would be an elite university. Um, I suspect that the majority of commentary, I mean, they, you know, they're teaching these kids uh, in, in some way liberal arts. So some of that liberal arts education includes philosophy and political science and, I mean, you know, the basics. I'm not talking about when you kind of delve off into petroleum engineering or business. I mean, those would be different. And you'd like to believe that the majority of political narrative would be kept out of that. But in some of these philosophy classes, in the liberal arts in general, there's going to be a lot of commentary. And I think the commentary overwhelmingly is the world is divided into oppressors and victims. And you got to be on one or the other. And the Jews are the oppressors. And the Palestinians are the victims. And they do a lousy job, intentionally do a lousy job, of distinguishing the Palestinians from Hamas and Hezbollah. And young people who are so impressionable look at Hamas and Hezbollah as they do the Palestinians and this ongoing land battle that has been uh, brewing since the beginning of time, so to speak. And that's just not the case. Hamas and Hezbollah are terrorists. They're Islamic jihadists. I I, got to believe the majority of Palestinians don't endorse that. But they elected it. I mean, to some degree, they're culpable, right? I mean, we've explained. I don't know how they elected. I mean, if somebody, here's your ballot, and here's my man standing here with a machine gun. Are you ready to vote? Yes, sir. How do I vote? I mean, I don't know if that's how it happens. You don't know if that's how it happens. Nobody in this room. I mean, I suspect there's a lot of strong arming, if you will, uh, in the electing of Hamas as the leader of Palestine, or maybe there are more Palestinians that hate Jews than, than I suspect. Um but, but the, 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 the number of 18, half of 18 to 24-year-olds in America today support Hamas over Israel. That's crazy to me because at some point in time in the lecture, you've got to inform that 18 to 24-year-old that Hamas is a terrorist organization funded by Iran. 843-661-0937. I want to get Josh's take on this. We got a call. We'll get to the call as soon as we take our break. 843-661-0937. Josh is making a lot of notes to himself. I'm looking through the glass here. He's studious this morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. You're on. Uh, good morning. You're off to a great start. But uh, I I think it. you, you said uh, 5 or 6%, excuse me, that five or six percent would um, would be uh, 
really catastrophic. Think if it gets to 10 or perhaps uh, 16%, maybe get get up there in the teens. What does that do? Uh, <laughs> what does that do to our GDP when you take that much money out just to pay the interest on the bill? How many programs can you keep going with with nothing left over? And as far as uh, this attack on the Israel and this glorification of Hamas, that uh, we we stepped on a crazy train a few years ago, and it's uh, and uh, we have a Supreme Court justice now that says that she cannot provide us with the common knowledge that every illiterate illiterate tribesman, Stone Age tribesman, has known forever the difference between a man and a woman, what a woman is. Now, that is just beyond, if you can make somebody believe that, you have got someone thoroughly brainwashed or scared to death, they're in a panic there, they're not thinking anymore. If they can believe that, that is is the truth. And she's either got to be really, really dumb, which I don't think she is, or really, really corrupt. And we had this situation that happened with uh, this letter that came out from all the security people against Trump, which uh, Biden miraculously produced with 51 of our most esteemed intelligent people in the, in, in the nation, said that... Uh, that Trump was a Russian plant. Well, this is just uh, we're 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 on a crazy train, and it's a and it's it's just designed to to destroy the two most pluralistic nations on earth, uh, the U.S. being one and Israel being another, because half of Israel is made up of. Uh, people of uh, Palestinian and Arab descent uh, that aren't even Jewish, don't even uh, claim any Jewish heritage, much less uh, religious heritage. And that's uh, that's just unbelievable to me that we would allow them to allow this group of people to take control of our institutions, our education, our economy, our uh, military, every important institution that makes this country great. Thank you, Mike. And Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Got another call. Let's go there. Bert and Florence. Hey, Bert. Good morning. You know, what I'm finding interesting is that when people talk about the Palestinians, you know, not necessarily Palestinians, but Hamas and whatever, and you say the terrorist organization, and it's always terrorist, terrorist. But we don't say that when we're talking about Israel or even the U.S. for that matter. And we're the biggest terrorists literally on the planet. We go into places that are none of our business. We insist that they live like we want them to live, and they use our money system and our democracy and whatever. And when they don't, well, then we find ways to punish them. So when the Palestinians are fighting back, they've been reporting for decades that Israel's coming in there in the middle of the night and throwing them out of their homes, that they're bullying them, that they're they're destroying everything they have. 
And then when they fight back, oh, we want to call them terrorists. So, you know, and this whole idea, one's evil and one's good. Well, I'm not in that age group. I'm, I'm 57 years old. And I can tell you, I do not believe in good and evil in any form as a constant. Because literally, good and evil depends on your point of view, what you've been through, what you've seen, and you know which side you happen to be on, where you happen to live. That dictates good and evil. So there is no such thing as good and evil. So I, I have to agree with that age group in in that respect. It depends on where you are, where you're standing. Bert, what motivates somebody to help someone across the street? Well, I tell you what, that goes back even before the Bible. You take care of your neighbors, and that's beneficial. So what if this person isn't your neighbor? What, what if there's some person that you've never met in your life, and you watch them struggling to cross the street, and, and, you, and you watch a person grab them by the arm? Let's say it's an elderly lady. She's struggling to get across the street, and some, some bystander who doesn't know her, doesn't know you, doesn't know anybody, feels obligated to help that lady across the street. What, what, what motivates that? What, 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 what about someone's internal functioning? It's, it's the need for peace around you. I mean, everybody wants to settle. And that's not good? I mean, that, that's not what, what causes that same no, lady to be no, kicked down that, and robbed? That is, that is not good. Uh, go down to Walmart today, and you'll see, I don't know, maybe five people walking around going, oh, I'm on my, I have no nothing. Can you just spare a little bit of change and whatever? Okay, are they in need? Or are they robbing you? They're literally coercing you by making you feel this. They, they're taking advantage of your need to help, okay? But when, what causes that need is the idea of peace around you. You know, when the Bible talks about helping your neighbor, they literally mean your neighbor. It did not mean someone halfway around the world that's none of your business. It meant your neighborhood, your area, things you can see. That's what it meant because what that does, and that goes back before the Bible, it creates a cohesive unit of peace in your area. And what we've done, unfortunately, is gained the, the ability to see around the other side of the planet. And so we think we have to get involved. Well, we don't. That's none of our business. And, you know, you talk about them electing Hamas. Yeah, that seems terrible. But look at our own system. We have people in government who don't care one cent of what we want. They go and they spend money we don't have. They pass laws that are absolutely damaging to our country and to us personally. They put us in this economic situation that does not need to be. And what do they do? They, they go on living like they don't even hear us. They just do whatever they want. And that's what Hamas is doing. The average Palestinian doesn't necessarily agree with Hamas's tactics. How do you know that? How do you know that? Because I talk to them. You talk to the average Palestinian? I talk to people around the planet on this wonderful thing called the internet. I do a lot of chatting with a lot of people in a lot of countries. And they tell me that, you know, they see the Jews, first of all, as evil. Okay, so we're we're saying this is evil and that's evil. Well, they'll say the Jews are But you evil said there's no such thing as evil. I do not believe in evil. I do not. But you but believe everything person, else the Palestinian says. No, no. I don't believe anything face value. Okay, okay thank you, Bert. Nothing. We got to we got to get out of here. Um I mean Bert has a different view. Uh 
Bert, I mean, it, uh, he's a Holocaust denier, and he doesn't believe there's good and evil. I mean, that, I, mean I, I respect that. I really and truly do. I mean, I just got a text. So, you know, why do you let this guy call? Because he's got an opinion, and it's America. And I'll never stop someone from expressing their opinions. If they're willing to listen and call a show, they're willing to listen and call a show. I mean, that's just the way talk radio works, and we're not going to give in to disallowing people, however controversial their opinions. I disagree with nearly everything that just came out of Bert's mouth. But if Bert calls tomorrow, guess what, Josh? He'll get on the air. Back in a few. We'll continue the debate in a couple of seconds about Israel, a theocracy or not, um, the situation with Palestine and Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, I found an interesting story. I mean, this is off the beaten path, but it was curious to me because I believe America has become far too litigious. I mean, we litigate. We don't legislate anymore. We, we, we litigate rather than uh, any important political issue in America ends up at the courts. And the Supreme Court eventually decides whether this is constitutional or not. Um, there's a case of an Israeli woman suing a weatherman for getting the weather wrong. And if I'm not mistaken, mm. she won. So <laughs> for those business guys who believe we litigate too much in America, could be worse, could be in Israel where someone wins uh, based on the weather. Attorney Andrew Reed is with us. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Glad to be on. So how can someone sue a weatherman for getting the weather wrong and be financially compensated? Yeah, so this was an interesting story, and I will just preface it to say that from the reports I've read, this actually is a story that came out in the 2000s. Um, and as some reports say the 2012, some say 2015, there's several different reports about this story. But essentially the story goes that this woman saw the weather report and it said it was going to be sunny and nice, so she dressed very comfortably to go out and go to work. Well, it turned to be a nasty storm. She ultimately got sick. And so she decided she wanted to be compensated because the weatherman got it wrong. And so she sued in small claims court for $1,000 and an apology is what she wanted. Mm -hmm. And from the reports I have found that she actually, ultimately the TV station and weatherman actually settled and said that they settled and paid the claim as it was presented and also issued that apology. So that's from the reports I read is how that story goes. Based on me, what would be, you're an attorney, I'm not. What is the legal standing there? I mean, it, if I buy a ticket to the football game and the ticket is invalid, that get me into the football game. I mean, obviously there's, there, there's, a, th there's a reason to be compensated there. But I mean, whether men guess at the weather, there's a 30% chance. So I guess what I'm asking is, if someone wakes up in the morning and there's a 30% chance of rain, and it does, I mean, it rains and they get sick or a 20% chance or an 80%. What is the threshold for allowing a suit like this to, to, you know, to take place? It's one, I will say small claims court can be very different than a traditional state court or a federal court. So there's a lot of differences there. So, but here really where it came down to is this woman had to go out and get medicine she missed work and apparently she was paid daily or weekly so she essentially missed a week of work with being sick so that's how she was saying the weatherman got it because he got it wrong she missed work because she was sick and she wanted to be compensated for her missed wages 
and the medicine and the doctor's visits that she had to spend money on as well. Fair enough. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, and, and I understand the case. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I remember reading something about this, and I thought it was, you know, Babylon B. I mean, I really right. and truly did. Weird. But but I, I want to say this, and I don't think my lawyer friends are listening yet because they're white-collar boys. They get up a little later than us blue-collar boys do. Um, but, I mean, we I'm serious. We've gotten our country in a place where somebody sues somebody else, somebody litigates over something else, and it's just – I mean, the absurdity, I read a statistic, and don't hold me to this, that America litigates about 9% of its GDP. I mean, the transfer of wealth from winners and losers in our judicial system equals about 9% of our GDP. GDP, And the what I'd call the developed nation's average is somewhere around 2.5%. Now, Israel may be the outlier there. But but we, we just, I mean, there's a... There's a squabble or dispute or court decision to be rendered, and, and you know the, the the lawyers get a high percentage of whatever it is of their motivation. We, we got to change some of that loser pay, you know, frivolous lawsuit uh, regulations or or statutes or there's got to be some difference here. Um, I mean, it's just the expense that it adds to business. You know, the concerned businessmen and women have about potential litigation. Uh, we were at a hospital a few days ago. I mean, I think a hospital accepts responsibility when they make mistakes, and they do. I mean, they do a lot of complicated things at hospitals. I would imagine when they make mistakes, that's why they carry a certain amount of uh, malpractice insurance and, you know, um, umbrella coverage and whatnot. But but we've allowed this nation to accept an extreme amount of litigation that we just shouldn't accept. I mean, we just, uh, you know, I go back to the McDonald's coffee case, uh, I mean, I understand you can read into that case and the coffee was too hot or the woman was extremely burned. I mean, but, but I, I, that, that's kind of the, I mean, that, that, that would be the story that everybody scratches their head. So a lady buys coffee and the coffee's too hot and the lady spills the coffee and the coffee scalds her and, and scars her for life, I guess. Um, and McDonald's is liable for that. Uh, it's just, you know, once again, uh, what, how the hot? common sense about okay, you know, coffee is hot. You bought a hot beverage, but but the question is, but it's what, not. Well, I mean, the argument is, it's not. It shouldn't be hot enough to scald you, right? And, and do permanent damage and skin grass and all. I mean, I get all but, that. But I mean, at what time does the weatherman say, "I'm 100 percent accurate. Plan your life 100 percent on what I say." Well, I mean, and 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 to that point, what is the threshold for it being a? In other words, if a if a judge sits there and says. This has no standing because it was only a 20% chance of rain. But this does have standing because it was a 40% chance of rain. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, where's the threshold? It's just we, 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 we're, we're suing too damn much in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, the courts are full of frivolous lawsuits, crazy lawsuits. Um, I mean, you, you see the – I don't want to beat up on the advertisements. I mean, I understand the legal profession's business. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I am well aware that the legal profession is a business, but but I'll assure you this, and I guess this would be not unique experience, but I mean, I, I've run a business all of my adult life, and the number of times that you go to court for things you just scratch your head over seem to be more prevalent, more prevalent, more prevalent as we go along, and the the, the lawyer profession has convinced people like me it's just the cost of doing business. And my response is always, well, it shouldn't be. I mean, we should be embarrassed 
that we've allowed our country to get to a point where this that you're, you're, you're trying to explain and, and, and asking me to consider settling out of court. Uh, that's the cost of doing business. Wow. Well, that's why uh, a lot of companies don't do business in America. When we look at the, um, you know, the outflow of manufacturing, when you look at companies, I mean, let's be honest, we don't endorse the way China does business. I mean, I, you know, human rights and child labor and worker rep. I mean, I, I get all that. I mean, the worker should have a seat at the table. But, but a lot of the problem in America today and a lot of the reasons that people left America to do business in China, India, I mean, they understand. The guy running a business understands that China does not respect human rights. I mean, he understands he's dealing with a communist government. But, but when he comes to America, next thing you know, a lawyer knocks on his door and says, hey, are you Mr. Such and Such? I am. Uh, I got employee A suing you for this, employee B suing you for, for this, employee C um, will settle out of court for issue X or Y. And, and I think businesses and business owners say, man, I, I can't do this. I mean, I can't. I'm trying to provide a quality opportunity for my employees, and things happen. And, and that's why you have insurance. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Things happen, and business owners are guilty sometimes of not taking care of things that should have been taken care of. But the the legal profession has so entrenched themselves in the business world, and the added expense of that costs the consumer at the end of the day more than the consumer ever imagines. I'll just leave it there. You know, valid lawsuit, frivolous lawsuit, the cost of doing business in America affected by litigation ends up costing the consumer more than you ever imagine it does. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Yeah, you know, sometimes some of these people you can't sue because you can't afford the tool. But that being said, back in the old days, I guess you just shot them. But um, anyway, kid, you're absolutely right. You know, we need more Jeffs, more of Burt's, and more Williams out there calling this stuff calling the show because uh, for me it just validates everything I believe. I listen to them and sometimes they'll say something and say, well, he's about to make a point, but then they'll say something that's so totally outlandish that they lose all credibility and it just gives me back faith in what I believe. But, uh, you know, we were talking about these wars and maybe it's just as simple as what you've been saying from from the beginning, it goes back to my old axiom: who would have, who would, who who's pulling for who? And I look at who's for this and who, who's our guests or whatever, and I know that those are people that I'm not for, or those are people I'm against. And I also know that the biggest thing about the deal of Israel is the other side will kill us. The Jews aren't looking to kill us all. So, you know, you can be sympathetic if you want to to Palestine and to Mars, but they want to kill you. So even if they are in the right, they still want to kill me. So I, I guess I better be on the Jews' side. But what I was going to ask you, Kim, what is going on in the House of Representatives? I mean, is there, are, are they really going back and forth like I would, uh, the good guys against the bad guys there? I mean, are there some big people there in the House? that are trying to get a house speaker that actually wants to do what's right. Um, I mean, maybe you could explain it to me. And another question, obviously, the thing is, I wonder how many members in the Republican 
be willing to have a Democrat as the Speaker of the House over Jim Jordan. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Let, let's do this. Let's bring it into one issue. I mean, it's not this simple, but I read something last night of the National Review, and the American conservative had an interesting article. Um, now, Twitter's full of this stuff today, and, I mean, I'm looking something out. Bill Crystal, uh, Mike Johnson. Johnson got 128 votes, uh, and he's 217. Byron Donnell got 29 votes. There were 44 others. Um, the, the, the news out of Washington is – how dare the Republicans elect a speaker that denies the results of the 2020 presidential election? To me, you have no choice but to elect a speaker that denies the results of the 2020 presidential election. That's where your electorate is. I mean, I go back to this asymmetrical relationship. That misalignment is one thing. Asymmetrical is another. 58% of the American people questioned the outcome of the 2020 election, 73% of Republicans. So if you've got one-third of Republican Congress members who have accept as, as you know, valid the outcome of the 2020 election, two-thirds that don't, I mean, it, you, you can't pick somebody who basically endorses the outcome of the 2020 presidential election because you're not representing the interests of your voters. Why does a political party exist? But there's a, there's a debate. And when I was in politics, it would go like this. So the political party exists to serve the needs of the constituency, the wants, the desires, the wishes, um, the zeal, um, the priorities, or does it exist to win elections? Because winning elections and not representing the interests of your constituency, I mean, why win elections? I mean, if I'm, right. if I, if I'm, elect, if I'm a Republican that. voter and I'm electing a Republican and the Republican I elect continues to obligate himself or herself to the uniparty, I mean, that, they're not doing my job. I mean, they're, they're not representing my interest. So two-thirds of GOP voters, uh, more than that, 73 of GOP voters don't believe that the 2020 election was valid. I mean, I, I don't know how many believe the election was stolen, but if you frame the question... Do you question the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? Yes. Do you have concerns? Yes. Do you trust what happened? No. I mean, that's that's 58% of America, 73% of Republicans, but the mainstream media are trying to make, you know, the electing of someone who is an election denier as extreme. No, it would be more extreme to elect somebody who does accept the outcome of the 2020 presidential election election aren't they trying to stigmatize sure anyone i mean you're you're a denier you're an election denier you're a threat to democracy you you you, you want to impede the the peaceful transition of power yeah they but, forgot about 2016 i mean there is no way the republican caucus can elect a speaker who accepts the outcome of the 2020 election not and argue that they're representing the interests of their constituency why does a political party exist to serve the interests of its voters or to win elections to do what it chooses to do after it wins said election. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. William and McCall. Good morning. You're on. Morning, Dave. Ken. Uh, morning. You know, what our elected officials, man, once they get to Washington, like everybody says, they don't care about us. It's all about them. And uh, I want to let Ken know, you was mentioning all. Uh, post on Facebook yesterday. Uh, you and a man running for the mayor McCall 
and a bird. So uh, uh-huh. might Uh-oh. be going there and check that out. Yeah, I can't check all the time. Like they, 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 they throw my name around. <laughs> sometimes, thank you, William. Appreciate it. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes not in, in such a good way. And I've just accepted that as part of the deal. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, he didn't say whether it was good or bad. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> what do you say? What, what other people, other think, people me? think of me is none of my damn business. Right. And I stand by that. <laughs> it's just, um, I mean, when you choose to have an opinion and to express it to the public, especially if you've ever held office, I mean, you're, you're going to, you're going to have people for you and against you. And I accept that as part of it. And, um, and I want to say this, um, Bert, I think, I think Breeze made an interesting point. Bert calls in and says things that he knows a lot of us disagree with, but he says it and he believes that it is entitled to believe those things. Williams says things that he believes and he, you know, says things that he knows creates uh, animus amongst our listeners. But he's certainly in, entitled to do that. Jeff does the same thing. We've had several over the years call in and take exception to what the host says and exception to what, you know, the, I don't know, the, the company line of Conservative Inc. is. Um, I probably take exception with the company line of Conservative Inc. as much as anybody. I mean, I really and truly do. I'll give an example. Bill Crystal is a, um, a prominent Republican. He's not as prominent as he once was, but he'd still be considered prominent. He's, um, he's on Twitter this morning basically condemning uh, the likelihood that Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana going to become Speaker of the House. And the reason is he has a very poor grade on funding for Ukraine. And that's good enough for Bill Crystal because he's a, he's a globalist elite. I mean, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. He has every right to be a globalist elite. Uh, my response to Bill Crystal is, you know, I know his grade on Ukraine. What's his grade for working Americans? I mean, that's what I'm far more interested in. <laughs> right. You know, what has he done in Congress to advance the cause of the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life? And I stay there. Um, you know, I said yesterday, speaking to the latter Rotarians, that I grew up a neocon. I don't think I knew it, but I grew up heavily influenced by Ronald Reagan and then George H.W. Bush. I mean, those were the guys that I kind of trusted to have the keys to the liquor cabinet. Um, that's not my guy anymore. I'm sorry. It's just not. Um, I'm not, I'm not disagreeable to peace through strength at what cost. I mean, at what amount of money? And I just think we've gotten ourselves in a place where when, when we talk about Ukraine and, and I think Rick said, you know, our, our security, what are our security concerns, our strategic interests when it comes to Ukraine, same with Israel, same with Taiwan. I mean, I'm not, I'm not naive to that. I mean, I understand that, you know, things working in Taiwan a certain way are in our best interest. I understand that Russia behaving a certain way is in our best interest. I understand uh, the strategic ally that Israel is, but also look at our bottom line. And I don't think anything is more important than that today. I think we've got to put on the back burner our strategic interest in Ukraine, our strategic alliance with Israel, how important it is for Taiwan and China to have, you know, a a coexisting relationship. I I just look at our bottom line and I'm saying to myself, wow, when, when about 200, about, uh, it's, it's somewhere between 800 billion to $1.6 trillion. When that debt resets from about two and a half percent to 5%, five and a half, 6%, the interest on debt is north of a trillion dollars. I didn't say principal and interest. The interest on debt is over $1 trillion. 
How does a member of Congress not wake up every day with that being the most important issue on their table? I mean, I'd love to ask Russell Fry that. Russell, I understand y'all got a lot of balls in the air. Uh, Ralph Norman, I under, Lindsey Graham, uh, Tim Scott, I understand it. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I've done it a little bit. I understand the juggling act it takes. Somebody comes to see about education funding and then infrastructure funding. And then some, some family has a child with cystic fibrosis. And, you know, the cuts to Medicaid or Medicare are going to cause, you know, uh, just personal anguish. I understand that. But, but I still believe you got to wake up every day with your eye on that debt. How do we constrain ourselves? How do we restrict our ability to spend money we don't have? How do we reform some of these entitlement programs? We have to be obsessed with that. If we're not obsessed with our financial situation, the kids that we say we love more than anything in the world will be left a mess. And America will be in precipitous decline because of our irresponsibility. It doesn't mean we stop caring about Ukraine and Russia. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to Israel and, uh, and Palestine or the Palestinians. It's, it's, and, and terror, the war on terror is real. I mean, you know, Islamic jihadists are real. They don't care if we're a trillion dollars in debt or 22 trillion or 33 trillion. I mean, do you think Islamic jihadists wake up every day saying, you know, America probably won't be as concerned about us because they've got this debt problem? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not in the mind of a terrorist. I don't know what makes terrorism flourish or not. But, but we've got to focus like a laser on our debt, and we've got to begin putting together a game plan to give our kids and grandkids a chance at a, at a brighter and more prosperous future. Let's go to the phone. Mitch in Florence. Good morning, Mitch. You're on. Hey, guys. How you guys doing? Um, I want to go back and talk about the, uh, the lawsuit you were talking about a, you know, a few minutes ago. And I'm a business owner. I've been the victim of these things. Uh, it, it's really, I don't think the public understands how bad it is. And it's, 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 it's really legalized extortion is all it is. You know, it's a culture out there. And you can, anybody can sue anybody for any reason. And the problem with that is then you got to go defend yourself. You know, I've been on the, on the receiving end of these things multiple times and for, for, for no better reason than a, a, a trip in my parking lot or, or, or saying they got something bad with no proof whatsoever, and then I'm held responsible for it. And then i got to pay to defend myself. And I just don't, I don't think it's right. It's just, like, like I said, it's just legalized extortion. And I asked a friend of mine who was a lawyer about it, and he says, every man deserves his day in court. Well, I agree with that, but how come somebody poor doesn't sue somebody else's poor? The reason is, ain't nothing in it for them. So it's all a money grab. It's all it is. And like I said, it says legalized extortion. I wish more people understood how that, all that worked. Cause well, anybody can get sued for any reason, anytime. Thank you, Mitch. Appreciate it. And if you've ever owned a business, you know. I mean, you if you've never owned a business, it's a little bit foreign to you. I mean, you, you hear these business owners gripe and complain about the cost of doing business and insurance and, you know, litigation and where that, how do you pass that expense along to anybody else? I mean, I, I've been uh, multiple times in my life. I have had a lawyer tell me, you're not wrong, but we got to pay. And I'm going like, well, what do you mean I'm not wrong, but I got to pay? Settling. You know, very few trials go to court. The majority settle. And, and, you know, th there's nothing more frustrating than this. You're an independent-minded business guy. You'd like to believe you got there because of that independence. You know, that, that uh, picking yourself up by the bootstraps, making something out of nothing, getting up early, staying up late, working your ass off to try and make a buck. And you try to be good to people. You try to provide a service. Try to take care of your customers. 
and along comes a situation you find yourself in, and your insurance company and your lawyer say, you're not wrong, but let's settle. I mean, how can that system make any sense? It's almost like we've allowed, I mean, we live in a nation. We profess to be the freest nation in the history of mankind. But it's normal to say perjury trap. I mean, think think of the judicial system that allows that to be normalized. Perjury trap. I mean, how how have we gone hundred years by allowing perjury trap to be part of the lexicon in you know legal uh, I don't know legal renderings or legal decisions or where you find um, yourself in uh, the process of our judicial system and and look I'm not saying lawyers are bad people I'm I'm, I'm certainly not the, the problem we got to get past in America and it really goes back to my rant about Gamecock football Monday I'm not so popular in Columbia. I mean, I found out yesterday from friends of mine, I'm not as um, I'm not as likely to get an improved parking spot if I really wanted one by some of the um, some of the bureaucrats in in Columbia at the university. I mean, but nothing's personal with me. I mean, if I see something that, that I think deserves a conversation and warrants some consideration from you, our listeners, we're going to talk about it. But we live in this thin-skinned culture. Well, if you say something about this profession, he must be talking about me. Or you say something about that group, they must be talking about about me. We gotta toughen up. I mean, we we gotta we gotta go to bat on our own calls. We gotta understand that that nobody is insulated from criticism. I'm not. Josh Itton, Rev Itton, no, nobody else is. So when we when we talk about you know our legal system and we say these damn lawyers try to talk you to settling out of court because you're and you, but despite you not being, I mean that's not personal with your lawyer. It's just the frustration that a lot of business owners have in how they try to conduct their business. Um, it's just bizarre to me that we've, and really and truly, our thin skin and conformed nature have gotten us where we are. Our unwillingness to confront authority, our unwillingness to not conform has probably created all of these political slash economic slash, well, in this case, legal systems that just aren't fair. I mean, what's fair about this, guys? And then we'll take our break, Josh. What's fair about your lawyer, a business owner, sits down with his insurance agent, his lawyer, and his insurance agent and his lawyer agree you did nothing wrong, but you need to pay that money? I mean, that's where we are in America. Your lawyer, your insurance company sit down with you and say you're not in the wrong, but we need to pay this money anyway to make it go away. How does that make us better as a nation? How does that make it more likely that people go into business uh, than not? It's absurd, but it's kind of where we are. And it's where you get when people become complacent and conformist. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. DW in Florence. Good morning. Yes. I, uh, I totally disagree with what Hamas has done. And I'll make a comment and then hang up and listen to you, what you have to say about it. But And they we get upset about uh, them cutting the heads off of babies. But our own government has allowed abortion. And I'm not hearing people get upset about that. And I think we need to do something about it here before we um, complain too much about what Hamas has done when we do it ourselves. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, the, the moral equivalency of abortion and you know, um, savage murdering, where are we there? Um, 
how do you distinguish? I mean, it's human life, human life, human life. I get that. Uh, the killing of innocent human life, the needless and senseless killing of human life. I struggle with that. In other words, when I try to compartmentalize terrorism and you read, I mean, I can't watch it. I mean, it's too gory for me. I just can't watch it. And, um, but when someone, you know, films the beheading of an infidel in the name of Islamic Jihad, um, and then you talk about an abortion, uh, how do you, how do you distinguish? How do you rate? I mean, that's a weird way to say it, but how do you rate, um, you know, the, um, uh, what am I trying to say? The, I mean, they're, they're, in my opinion, they're both taking innocent human life. I mean, they are. They're, there's no doubt about it. But but I have a hard time equating one to the other. I, I just, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I should or should not. I'm just admitting that I have a hard time trying to find some equation to a, an unborn baby and the extinguishing of that human life and a 27-year-old journalist being held hostage in um, you know, in Iran, uh, by Hamas or Hezbollah or in, uh, Gaza or, or the West bank. And, uh, you know, the visual of the beheading, uh, you know, a knife and a sword and just the butchering. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying one is, is less tragic than the other. I'm certainly not suggesting that I am admitting as a, you know, a, a, a flawed human being that I have a lot of compli- I've a lot of difficulty finding, the equivalency um, there. Let's go to the phone. Dan in Florence. Hi, Dan. You're on. Yeah, I I have a an example of personal liability. You, y'all were talking about the business liability. You know, it's not just it's not just business stuff. And an example is this: my my son and his buddies when they were in college um, were hanging out listening to the radio, and he decided he needed to go to the restroom. He when he left to go to the restroom, his buddies were sitting with his truck, and they thought they were going to play a prank on him. They get in his truck and start driving around the parking lot. One of the kids that's, um, you know, on his truck, sitting on the tailgate, falls off, hits his head, um, and I become personally liable for that injury because my son left his key, left the keys to the truck in. Um, you know, in the, in the ignition. So, um, I, I didn't see where I was liable, but my, uh, insurance provider said, you need to pay. Um, and I just thought it was interesting when Ken was talking about that earlier. Um, I, I didn't see where I was personally liable, but the insurance company said you are. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Eight, four, three, Six six one zero nine three. What are you laughing about? Well, I'm just thinking about you in that scenario because I know you, and I'm just picturing you in the room with an insurance company and a lawyer, and they tell you, <laughs> "Hey, we know you're not, you shouldn't be liable here, but you need to pay." And how you probably would react to that? I mean, it's, it's the well. I mean, you have to be accepting. I mean, you, I mean you they're don't giving like you advice. It. I mean, obviously. well, I mean, it's people you trust. I mean, yep. if you don't trust your lawyer, find another lawyer. If you don't trust your insurance company, find another but insurance company. I can imagine company. you would pretty aggressively well, I do. ask. You, you better believe it. I mean, I, I absolutely do. And, um, I mean, I think they'd rather fire me than me fire them, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it does frustrate. The majority of business owners, I mean, how do you stay in business? I mean, think about this. How do you stay in business? I mean, if you're a restaurant owner, I'll use this as an example. Um, what's the last thing you want to happen? It's to not take care of your customer. 
for somebody to get sick in your restaurant, for food poisoning to get out on Facebook or Twitter. Um, I mean, it, if the insurance company and lawyer are concerned about it, they're concerned a tenth of the time you are. I'll give an example. I met with a uh, my banker and I had lunch one day last week about something that we're kind of working on and he's helping me with. And we were talking about the economy. We always talk about the economy and interest rates and the Fed and politics and, you know, college football. I mean, we talk about a lot of different sorts of things. Um, but in the conversation, he was talking about, you know, the, uh, the regulators. The regulators come in and they want to know why you loan this guy this much money and, you know, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, he's in this business and that business, and he's not diverse enough, and he's got all of his eggs in this basket, and the banker gets challenged. As to why? Are you sure you're not in cahoots with him? I mean, this would have been the Obama administration and now the Biden administration. I mean, my banker tells me, like Trump, hate Trump. Trump put people that understand banking in charge of banking. They didn't walk in the doors of your bank believing you were running a criminal enterprise and loaning only uh, to white people to vote Republican. That's kind of what the Obama administration believed. You know, when they walk in the bank, they, they walk in the bank with this attitude of, I'm sure you're doing something wrong, and we'll stay here long enough until we, until we find out. But anyway, he's reviewing some of the accounts, and, you know, they say, well, I mean, this is a little bit odd. And he's going like, well, I mean, it might be odd, but the guy's been a customer 35 years. He's taken out 150 notes, and he's never not paid. I mean, he's had, he's had some hiccups. I mean, the economy gets soft, and, you know, he gets behind a little bit, but he catches up, and then he, uh, you know where I'm headed. I mean, the relationship of, um, of the bank. But, but then my banker said to me, and, and it, it, it stuck with me, because he, he said, look, if I'm worried about it, I know he's worried about it 10 times more than I am. If I'm concerned with it, I know he's concerned. If it keeps me up 10 minutes at night, it keeps him up all night. And that's the relationship. And I just believe that business has been thwarted. You can't do business the way business should be conducted for fear of some sort of litigation. I mean, I, I got two boys, and, and I've tried to explain to them, and, my, and, you know, can't do it this way. Well, it doesn't make any sense to do it that way, Dad. It doesn't make any sense to do it the way you want to do it. That doesn't sound like you. I said, no, but I'm thinking about litigation. I'm thinking about what if something happened? Yeah, it's going to take a half a day longer, and it's going to cost $5,000 we shouldn't have to spend, but I just don't want some lawsuit. You know, from somebody who, uh, you know what I mean? I mean, that, that's just, and I'm telling you, if you don't run a business, this is kind of therapeutic for me. If you don't run a business, you don't understand it. You really and truly don't. But I can assure you of this. If we didn't litigate as much as we did, every damn thing you buy would be cheaper. Let me say that again. If we didn't litigate as much as we litigate in America, every damn thing you buy would be significantly cheaper. Take a break. Back in a few. Uh, it's y'all's world. I'm trying to do the best I can to get from <laughs> point A to point to point B, sometimes successfully, sometimes um, not so much. Health insurance is complicated. I think we can all agree with that. It's also expensive. Everyone's situation is different. And the one thing the exchanges have done is try to put all of us in a smaller and smaller box. When you're planning health insurance for you and your family, you, you do need to consult an expert. There are a lot of questions and a lot of concerns and a lot of un uncertainties. Christian Levis at Real, Ch ah, Real Choice Healthcare uh, has been helping people get the right coverage for the best price for many, many, many years. If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you don't need all the bells and whistles that come along with some of the policies offered today. 
you can save a lot of money. In fact, you can save a buttload of money, which is substantially more than a lot of money. Here's what I'd suggest you do. Call 839-888-3970-839-888-3970 or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. It's very, very worthy of your time and and consideration for clarity's sake. You ready? I mean, I want to. I'm not. I'm not pumping the brakes. <laughs> you're just cleaning it up. Well, do you think my idea is crazy? No, I think it's, it makes a lot of common sense. Well, unless you're talking about criminal cases, well, yeah, unless you're obviously. talking about you know um, bank robbery. Yeah, no, or, you're talking about civil. Sure, I'm talking disputes. about civil cases. Uh, all civil cases. Yeah, I knew. That. We I are going that. to introduce a law in the state of South Carolina that says no civil case can be settled. It's got to go to court. I mean, I understand the insurance companies have worked hard to advance this, the lawyers. I get it. I mean, I understand that we've built a very complicated system, and everybody's fed well in this complicated um, system. But but I, I believe the best way to cut out the – I'll clean it up – the um, the, the, the stuff is to, um, <laughs> is, to, um, is to make sure that when Josh let, – let's say Josh comes in my restaurant and Josh slips intentionally intentionally slips. I mean, that happens, guys. Believe it or not, I mean, there are some people out there staging accidents and um, and trying to collect insurance money from, you know, business owners who they know are well covered and, and just can't risk, you know, what may happen if they if they were to, to, to lose a larger settlement in a, in a court by some, you know, hand-picked judge or hand-picked jury in this case. So, so my resolution or my solution is, and once again, I mean, murder trials are different. Rape charges are different. I mean, th- those are criminal charges, and I mean they should be processed as you know fully investigate. And you know the um the the the, the two or three day trial that takes place to whether finding out if this person is guilty or not. But civil cases are not allowed to be settled, and they're not going to be looked at by handpicked juries. These are professional jurors. Now, now, the question is, who picks the jury? Well, in South Carolina, you know the answer to the General Assembly, <laughs> right? I mean, the General Assembly picks picks everything. I will say this. I'm jumping around a bit now, um, but I'm almost on my second Celsius. The one thing that I thought people would reluctantly embrace was my thought on the Board of Trustees at the University of South Carolina, and Clemson, for that matter. Um, I offered up, what if... A, a certain number of board members at South Carolina and Clemson were not elected by the General Assembly, but rather by the alumnus or the alumni. I mean, what, what if the alumni elected four members at Clemson and six members? I think the Clemson board's got 13 to 14 members. Uh, the USC board's got 20 or 21. I mean, the governor has uh, an ex officio position on the board. At, I don't know about Clemson, but at South Carolina, I know they do. And I think the governor picks a couple at either university. Um, but but what if the what if the and not even not not just the alumni? What if everybody who is an alumni or financial supporter? I mean, you would be a financial mm-hmm. supporter. You're mm-hmm. a member of the Gamecock Club. I would be a financial supporter. Um, I don't think you can go as far as to say the parents of you know an alumnus. I, I think that gets too you get too big a pool of of um, confusion 
going on there. It didn't, I mean, it, the, the people I talked to yesterday were like, oh, okay. I mean, you know, I don't think that's a crazy mm-hmm. idea. I mean, they, they're the stakeholders. I mean, they, you know, they paid the majority of, uh, they paid the lion's share of the, the I don't know, the, um, the ballots to budget at the university by their tuition and their contributions to the athletics department. Why should they have a say in who are on the board of trustees at Clemson and South Carolina? That didn't run into much resistance. Now, term limits was another story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. M- m- most of the ones I talked to and know fairly well were like, no, I don't know about the term limits. Uh, you know, let, let's argue about that. You know, no term limits, but yes, on the, um, on the alumnus you know, or the alumni picking uh, a member or two or three. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that at well, all. Well, I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you are the people that the university is important to you. You're important to the university. I mean, they're always sending you. I mean, I get an email every month, you know, hey, the Garnet Way, we need another $100. You know, the Garnet Way, <laughs> they'll tell this very inspirational story about this exchange student or this athlete that's done something spectacular. You know, representing USC. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We forgot to ding you for this hundred bucks or five hundred <laughs> or a thousand or whatever or whatever. It is. The business of higher education, and you know me, I've got some opinions on on that as well. Um, but I've got to distinguish, and I've got to do a better job of talking about higher education two pronged. You've got the elite universities, and, and the reason I'm saying this, guys, we're in the business of politics. The majority of political decisions and reporting are, are made and done by a certain kind of person. Josh, do you believe that? The, the, the majority of administrative agencies are run by a certain kind of person, and that certain kind of person is very similar to the certain kind of person that inhabits the major newsrooms and news outlets in America today. Yeah, I, I mean, agree you, with that. Okay, I mean, they, they're not one of the same, but, no. the, but there ain't a lot of difference. There aren't a lot of Francis Marion graduates running the Treasury Department right. or running the Department of Education. There aren't a lot of Clemson or Carolina graduates on the Fed board or in the, in the decision-making process at CNN or NBC News or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And I think I've got to be careful when I say, you know, these, um, these, these, these colleges that graduate these kids – that end up running our government and reporting as uh, prominent members of our media, I've got to stop that. It's really about 11 colleges. I mean, it, it's, it's the Ivy League, and it's a couple of others that, that are – George Washington would be one. Georgetown would be another. Um, Stanford. But, but Stanford is a little bit removed from that. I mean, that, their, their kind of ecosystem is more Silicon Valley. I mean, it's capitalism. It's anarchy, really, to be honest with you. Um, but I got to believe that would be interesting. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what percentage of Stanford graduates end up in administrative positions within our government or on the board at CNN or, you know, chief correspondent or, you know, the, um, the person who runs the editor, the editor board, the editorial board, whoever, whoever makes the call at CNN as to what gets reported and what does not. We know, I mean, there's no denying there are a bunch of Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, Cornell, Brown. I mean, you know, George Washington, Georgetown. But we know there are a lot of those kind of graduates that inhabit those very important positions in our lives. How many Stanford? Because in all honesty, most of the ratings I read today now have Stanford above the Ivy League schools in preeminent educations in America. Uh, I guess the most prestigious 
and 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 credentialed kid entering the workforce has a degree from Stanford. I mean, that carries a lot of weight. But but I wonder. I mean, that's not associated with government or the media. That would be more associated with Silicon Valley, right, Rev? And innovation. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, Silicon Valley. I mean, Stanford has this incubator that has been um, the birthplace of. I mean, uh, what was the vape company that I told you about? Jewel. Yeah, the um, the first company to get a ten billion dollar market cap was Jewel. Uh, it was founded in Silicon Valley at Stanford. Um, PayPal. Uh, I mean, you name it. Uh, Google. I mean, there's so many companies that were founded, c- kind of centered around that Stanford education. So they're known for something uniquely different than the Ivy League, uh, plus George Washington, plus Georgetown, and and plus a couple of others. Um, where did Hillary go? Was uh, and I don't know about New York University. That'd be more of a law school um, kind of thing. Somebody on the phone. Yep. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I want to, you know, anything about the Constitution, about voting, like the presidential election? Can you tell me something about that? What the Constitution say? About the presidential election? Yeah. That there will be an electoral college, and uh, I think the Constitution was amended to include term limits. I don't think the original Constitution included term limits for the president. As the public vote in the presidential election, do they vote count? I mean, I don't know that the Constitution specifically speaks to the vote counting or not. I mean, I, I don't. Where, where are you headed, Williams? I mean, I, I know you got something on your mind. Where are you? Where are you headed? <laughs> Just cut to it. <laughs> what I'm saying to you. If the state of South Carolina votes for a Democratic president, but the uh, like the House made up of Republicans, they want to change that voting. You know what I'm saying? You're talking about like a different slate of electors. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm saying. But I mean that that's allowed. I mean you can do that. You're not in violation of the Constitution if you use an alternate slate of electors. Okay, let me let me ask you something. Sitting, I want I want the, the House of Representatives and the Senate. I want a no or yes vote whether they believe the election was fair. Can I get that? I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I don't think I can't speak. Republican Party. I can't speak for the entire party. I mean, I can tell you that I don't believe the election was fair. But but You're I certainly right. can't speak for all Republicans. I can't speak for uh, the Republicans in the Senate or the House. But I can speak for me personally. I don't think the election of twenty twenty was fair. Let's talk about Fannie Willis. Is she going to be the next Perry Mason? Perry Mason was on television now. <laughs> she <laughs> is rolling. Is she? Is she rolling? We shall see, Williams. I remember them trying to change a lot of those electors in 2016. They tried to convince electors to change from Trump to Hillary Clinton in 2016, if I remember right, didn't they? Okay, Rev, Rev. Let me let me let me ask you one thing. Okay. If you if you were Mark Meadows, what would you do? I'm not. I don't know what I'd do. Oh, what would you do if you was Mark Meadows? Williams, can I get you to commit one thing to me? <laughs> Yeah, the, the the Wednesday in 2024, the day after Trump wins the 
2024 presidential election. Let me finish now. I, I, I don't, ever, I don't, I don't okay, interrupt you. The day, the, the Wednesday after Trump gets reelected president, <laughs> will you come in this studio and drink a cup of coffee with me? <laughs> there you go. Hey, let, let, let me say one thing. I'll send my car to get you, Williams. How about that? Hey, look, hey let me say one, one thing. Josh, the the uh, uh democracy is on the line democracy on the line in the in the um, election in 2024 have a good day thank you Williams. i might agree, I with agree. That. Yeah. yeah i'll agree with that <laughs> yeah you know it always is yeah. when presidents are elected and they have you know positions that influence all of our lives no doubt about it um i sense a little anxiety in liberal land. I, I really, the Democrats are deeply, here's what the Democrats, and I, I, I'm speculating, but that's what we do here. I'm giving an opinion. I don't know what make Williams tick or Jeff or some of these others that don't like Trump and, and find him unsuitable for the office. They are the only ones. I mean, half the country finds Trump unsuitable for the office. That's why half the country will vote against him, but half the country will vote for him. And it'd be a closely contested election. He's the odds on favorite today. I mean, I checked the bookmakers again this week. He's still the odds on favor. Now, anything can happen. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he could um, he could run into legal problems. He could say something. Well, he's not going to do that because he's already done. If he's going to say something that caused him to lose votes, that would have already happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ones that have tolerated him up until now, they ain't jumping off the train between here and the, uh, and the finish line. But legal peril could cause some concern amongst a certain percentage of independents in about five or six states that will decide – who the president is, but as we speak today, and if the election were this morning, Donald Trump would get elected president of the United States. And some people just never thought we'd get here, that they had convinced themselves that there was a way to abolish him uh, from the political process, to vanish him, to make him one of these blips on the radar, kind of a... Um, They're throwing everything they got at him, they, I, I, and I, he's still there. Well, but he's still standing. And he's now, leading in polls. Probably standing taller than he's ever stood before. But you're detecting a bit of uh, anxiousness and well, concern? I mean, you know, it's, it's almost like, you, you know, you wake up every morning, and there's that damn cockroach on the kitchen floor <laughs> again. And before I can step on it, he scurries under that, under that counter. And tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next... Yeah, I mean, I, I sense that in a, a lot of their demeanors. Um, how do we get rid of this guy? Now, you can't when half the country believe that Washington is fundamentally broken and he is a wrecking ball to finish a job that he started in 2016. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I think Republicans have to be careful to not take the bait. And here's the bait. You ready? The bait is the election was stolen. Because when you say the election was stolen, they have a right to ask for proof. And it's hard to provide proof. Statis- ah, statistical anomalies are not proof. I mean, they're just that. What are they? They're statistical anomalies. They don't make sense. They don't add up. Something doesn't smell right here. But you can't say the election was stolen. You can say emphatically, I don't trust what happened. I mean, I don't trust what happened in 2020. And we better, as a Republican, make sure what happened in 20 doesn't happen again in 24. I was just going to say, it's easy for them to say there's no, uh, there's, hey, there's no evidence the election was stolen when they didn't even look. Well, I mean, and, <laughs> well, they didn't look because of all the statistical anomalies and how you would have to explain. That's where we were wrong. The, the, the argument shouldn't have been the election was stolen. 
The argument should have been from day one, man, something smells here. I mean, you got voter turnouts going from 69 to 92%. You've got counties with 100% turnout in senior homes. I mean, there are 27 senior homes in one county, and of the 27 senior homes, they had 100% turnout. Wow. I mean, I think the public goes, yeah, something doesn't make sense there. I don't know if it was stolen or not, but something certainly doesn't make sense there. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning. Isn't it strange how people forget or people want to forget? We could have put uh, Al Gore in prison, according to uh, Williams. Uh, We could have put Hillary Clinton in jail, according to Williams, because those were just the same as us objecting to the results of the 2020 election. Now, if you can't say it was stolen, how did Hillary get by with that and actually refuse to concede the election? How did Al Gore get get by with it? Also, uh, Ken, in that uh, first uh, statement that you were talking about with the money allocated for Israel and Taiwan and Ukraine, you forgot one. There's money allocated for Hamas. Uh, they call it humane relief, but it's going to Hamas. You know it will. Also, I would like for you to remember and tell Williams who it was that sent him to Vietnam and who it is that is causing all the groceries to go up, the gas to go up, and the open borders that are taking benefits away from Americans by giving all the illegals smartphones, food, housing, and medical care. Those seem to be the things that are overlooked constantly. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. Talking about inflation, I want to touch on this. Uh, before we get, I think we got Ryan Schmelz at 9.05 to talk about the speaker's race, and I want to get into that a little bit in our last hour. Um, Daphne brought up inflation. I made some notes this morning um, after some conversations I had yesterday with people in the business, and I'm talking about banking and and, and housing and realtors and whatnot. Um, we're living in this hyperinflationary era, and uh, the M2 money supply, remember we talked a couple of weeks back about the M2 money supply increasing from 15 to 22 trillion. And now it's back to about 21 trillion ish, somewhere thereabout. We've extracted through quantitative tightening about a trillion dollars, uh, what 80 billion, a hundred billion a month somewhere. Anyway, anyway, the, um, from 15 to 22 back to somewhere in the neighborhood of 21, it didn't quite 21, but it's somewhere in, in that neighborhood, but we're looking around now. And I think we all agree that housing is a big indicator as to how the economy's doing. I mean, where are we in relation to housing? I'll say this. Housing is least affor- is less affordable today than I think it ever has been. I mean, we've not tracked these numbers forever, but, but never before has a home been so unaffordable. The median home in America today is $410,000. It won't be that way long, but that's the median Today, I mean, there's going to be a, a rapid depreciation of asset price here sooner than later. I know the realtors don't want to say this, 
I know the, um, you know, the builders are concerned, but I mean, it's just, it's inevitable. I mean, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, housing, the, the most recent generation, and this is another place that I doubt realtors are very fond of me saying this, house is not an investment. It's somewhere to live. It's shelter. And it has to be, I mean, it, is it, can it be a wise investment? Of course it can. I mean, it can be a bad investment. But, but primarily, it's something to give you shelter. It provides, you know, a place for you to call home. But the median home in America today is $410,000. If you put 20% down, that's eighty-four grand. That means you finance $386,000. I mean, that's the median home price in America. The banks are now requiring, believe it or not, a down payment. So 20% down um, puts you financing $326,000. At 4%, which is what the interest rate was a year ago. I'm going to imagine that, guys. At 4%, that payment is $1,556 a month. Today, the 30-year mortgage is about 7.8-ish. I mean, I did it at 8. It's been north of 8 for a day or two or three, and then a little bit. I mean, it fluctuates back and forth. But at 80%, excuse me, at 8%, that payment goes from $1,556 to $2,400. So your house payment just went up roughly $850. And for the first time in American history, we're paying about 40% of our median household income on a house. That's what they're expecting you to pay to buy a median home. We can't do that. We're going to take a break. On the other side, I want to explain what's got to happen. Unless the price of the home significantly decreases, nobody wants to hear that, but it's going to happen. Here's what has to happen to get that back in some place of equilibrium. Take a break. Back in a few. So in the 9 o'clock hour, Ryan Schmelz will be with us, and we're going to talk about the speaker's race, and I'll kind of go through some of the numbers and what I'm hearing and what I've read and and what I understand to be true and what I'm making an assumption about. But I want to go back to um, some of this math that we were talking about a second ago. Uh, in America today, the median home is $410,000. It's crazy. That's crazy but it's where we are. The banks are requiring a 20% down payment. Um, we're no longer in the wild, wild west of subprime lending and, you know, 100% financing. So that means that the, the person who's trying to buy a median home has to come up with $84,000. So in the good old days of 4% interest, if you came up with the 84 grand, uh, which is a lift in itself, you, your payments are $1,556. That's a year ago, not a decade ago, a year ago. Today, that 1556 would be $2,392, $2,400. So for the first time since we've kept records, the median price of a home compared to the median income of an American household is so out of whack. It's never been this out of whack. Let me say that again. Median income, median price of a home have never been, um, in other words, the, the median price of a home has never required such a percentage of the median income of an American household. It's over, I mean, it's like 46% or some crazy number um, like that. Now, now, now rest easy. I mean, we can solve this. You ready? Well, I mean, there are three things can happen that puts everything humpty dumpty back together mm. again. Um, nothing to see here. No problem. Roll on says Wall Street. Um, we could have a 37% decline in home prices, and we're good. 
I mean, just 37%. No. Mm-hmm. You know, a little, I mean, somewhere between a third and a half. <laughs> you know, your home has to depreciate to get everything back in place. Only somewhere between, I didn't say 3.7%. I said 37% 37. Wow. decline in home prices. Or the home mortgage rate could go back to 4%. Historically low. Uh, probably as low as it's ever been in American history. Or median income could grow by 62%. So no reason to be concerned. All easy things. Either either home prices drop by 37%, mortgage rates drop by 100%, or median incomes go up by 62%. I didn't say 6.2%. I said 62%. So there's, I mean, they're, they're, we're not out of sorts. Yeah. I mean, we're All a little bit off center. It's easy. Yeah. I mean, that you know, that front tire, I mean, it's just a little bit out of, I mean, just run by the tire shop, run by, you know, lease tire and let them kind of straighten you out. I mean, it'll take five minutes. Nothing to see here. Uh, one of those little weights, you know, those thingamajig weights they put on the, the rim that gets it back in balance. No, you don't have a tire. You're riding on the rim. I mean, that's where we are. And we've tried to escape reality for longer than we should have tried to escape reality. And and I understand it. I mean, if I were a realtor, if I were a builder, if I were a banker, I, I would pump sunshine. But I think in your heart of hearts, if you're a smart realtor, you know where we are. If you're a smart builder, you know where we are. If you're a smart banker, you know where we are. And I'm not blaming anybody. I mean, it's the party bus syndrome, right? Josh, you like being on a party bus? Heck yeah. we, we got girls in bikinis. We got high-end bourbon. We got cigars. <laughs> I mean, who wants to get off that bus, right? I mean, I guess a woman would, but a dude wouldn't. I mean, you couldn't trick a dude off that bus, right? Nope. But but the party bus <laughs> is heading off into the financial abyss, and there's a cliff, and we know it's there. But I got these, <laughs> I got these things on this bus. Too, too that much I find, fun on the bus. Yeah, too much fun on the bus. I don't want to get off the bus. Yeah, but there's a 10,000-foot cliff just over there. Well, I, I mean, I'll get off, but not <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. We're not there yet, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm right? sure. Are you I'm, sure not we're not? Going, I'm not going off the edge of the cliff for these girls' bourbons and cigars, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not getting off today. Let, let's stay here just a little bit longer and see if there's a change. Well, I mean, there is a, there's a chance. I mean, there's an absolute chance. We could have a 37% decline in home prices. We could have uh, mortgage rates reduced by 100%, or we could have median income increased by 62%. That's how we get back to a normal model of house pricing and median income. Now, but that, that's what it takes to get us back uh, to where we historically have been and probably more than, than likely should be. I mean, th- you know, a sugar high can't last two decades. I mean, there's a reason you call it a sugar high. And in 2007, when the world blew up, the Fed made decisions, the government made decisions that we're going to eventually regret. Now, we've kicked the can down the road, and we've been as creative as humanity can be in figuring out a way to avoid the inevitable. But I think we're about to crash against that wall, and we're about to understand that there's nothing normal about keeping interest rates at zero for a decade. There, there's nothing normal about increasing M2 money supply by 40%. I spoke to the latter Rotarians yesterday, and the look on I mean, people, when you say it this way, when you say that 40% of all the liquidity in our economy today didn't exist 
in December of 2019. And they kind of look at you like, I can't be true. There's no way. But that, that guy just said that 40% of the liquidity in our economy today didn't exist before the pandemic. Well, it didn't. I mean, we went from 15 to $22 trillion. We created out of thin air $7 trillion. How many years ago, Royal Reb, <laughs> is a trillion seconds? Almost 32,000 It's years. almost impossible to fiscally create that liquidity. Well, we didn't fiscally create the liquidity. I mean, it's digital currency. I mean, some computer somewhere that the Fed has access to printed, you know, seven or created. That's a better way. In the old days, we talk about printing presses. Now we're digitally creating content. We don't print. Well, we still print newspapers. Nobody buys. But anyway, um, the digital presence of American newspapers has taken the pace, place of the printing press. Same with the, with the Fed. But they don't, they don't fire up the printing press. Hey, Joe, fire that thing up, man. Put it on high. I mean, we got this, these politicians spending money, and the Fed wants to inject all this cash. You got to print those dollars faster, man, $100 faster. No, we don't do that. We digitally create currency, and it's fiat. I mean, it, what, what is its value? Well, you tell me. Tell me what the paycheck you take home today does compared to what it did pre-pandemic. Not anywhere near as much, right? I mean, we all agree to that. Nowhere near as much. Forget measurements of inflation. Forget CNBC and Bloomberg and what they say the rate of inflation is. We know what it is. We live it. I mean, we don't need a chart or a graph. We buy gas. We buy groceries. We go out and eat. Rev and I have these off-air conversations about the changes in our lifestyle we've made. Um, and, and it hurts the economy. I mean, when you make these decisions, waitresses and certain people in certain sectors of our economy, I mean, they pay a price. But it's called, you know, can't stay at the Ritz-Carlton, so you stay somewhere else. I mean, we all have budgets, and we all have answers, except the Fed, except the government. And they continue to spend, I mean, this year will be the highest deficit that the country's ever had. It adds to the debt. The debt will be somewhere for 34 um, there will be a point if we don't change. I read this, and I'm beating this dead horse because it needs to. I read somewhere over the weekend that if we continue on the current trajectory, cash inflow, and I'm talking about tax receipts, the amount of money the government takes in will not satisfy the amount of debt and the refinancing of the debt. In other words, we forget Medicare, Medicare, and Social Security. At some point in time in the next 20 years, if we continue as we are, the amount of money we collect in the name of taxpayer receipts will not be enough to service the debt. And we continue to move along. So, yeah, there, there, there are ways to get out of this. You know, house prices cut in half. Incomes up, you know, nearly double. I'm just, you know. We'll do that before noon. No, sure. What will we do this afternoon, Rev, once we fix <laughs> those insurmountable or face those insurmountable odds? Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Last hour of this Wednesday morning, Ryan Schmelz from Fox News is with us. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Doing good. How are you, sir? I'm placing your name in nomination for Speaker of the House. How about that? I mean, they, they, the well, Republicans can't get their feces consolidated, so I'm placing Ryan Schmelz as a nominee for Speaker. You up for it? 
Well, some of them are going to tell you that uh, you're going to be proven wrong because they are probably the most confident they've been that they've got a nominee who can get the 217 votes needed. It was a very unified front last night when they were leaving the, the conference meeting, though it was a very late vote. Um, and yes, there is still this the possibility Mike Johnson might run into some issues, but the, the party feels that they've got their nominee and they've got the, the way forward. What about Johnson? Is it fatigue? Is it, I mean, is it, is it some of the things he said? I mean, what is it about Mike Johnson that makes you think this may be the time they get across the finish line? It's all of the above. You definitely felt the sense from moderate members yesterday who might be a problem for Johnson that they're just kind of tired and that they need they need to elect a speaker candidate right now. Um, I think the fact that he aligns with uh, certainly a, the, the conservative wing of the party but may not have the divisiveness or the, the loud rhetoric that Jim Jordan had with him, uh, I think that kind of gives him an advantage there. And the fact that he still has a position within leadership, which makes him attractive to some moderate candidates, too. So there's a, there's a lot there that, that's working for Johnson that I think will help him potentially get that 217. But there are still some, some roadblocks there. Some care about this, some don't. What does President Trump feel about a Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana? It, it looks like it's positive on the Trump side. Uh, Trump has been a fan of Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson has been a fan of Trump. So it looks like uh, he will not be getting in the way the way that he uh, very strongly came out against Tom Emmer after Emmer got the nomination. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Uh, you too. Let's see if we get a speaker. <laughs> Good deal. If not, you will be the nominee next. Um it's kind of a, it's, it's been a process. I had a, a Democrat house member, uh, text me yesterday. We're friendly. Good guy. I love him to death. Uh, we see the world very similarly in that he grew up in a small rural town, South Carolina. I grew up in a small town, rural South Carolina. Um, but, and, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but they're still making this about Trump because it is, I mean, it absolutely is. I would imagine that full throttled vindication of Trump and the election was stolen and, you know, the uniparties at work doing the bidding well, of who's the, the leader. Who's the leader of the Republican Party? Well, I mean, it would be, well, I mean, that's uh, Donald Trump. I mean, no, no doubt about it. And, but, but, but the, here's where I'm headed. Cause I think this is a legitimate debate that we're not having. And I think you really got, you got to go all the way back in the beginning. We talked about the Bible and the old Testament in the beginning, we created a political party. What was the political party? Four. It is an arrangement or an association of like-minded people. It doesn't mean Rev and I agree on everything, but there has to be some consensus of the voters. It's not to get things done. It's not to establish routine in government. It's not to um, you know have the meeting at Krispy Kreme before you have the meeting at Council Chambers. Not that I've ever done that, but I've heard of some of those meetings before uh, council or the General Assembly get together. I've heard that they may um, get some of the um, shenanigans out of the way before they have the formal and dignified process. I just believe, and I think Jim may have said this one day, this or last week, I believe that this is positive. We're, we're fighting for the heart and soul of a party. We're either going to have a Republican or Democrat president come 2024. We're not going to have an independent president. Who does RFK help or hurt? I don't know. I mean, I think it cuts both ways. But he ain't going to be the president. Cornell West is going to hurt Joe Biden in some places, but he ain't going to be the president. The president's going to be a Republican or a Democrat. When that Republican goes to Washington, 
What is he doing? Is he there to cohesively and, and, and consistently govern? Or is he going there to carry the wishes and wants and desires of half the nation? And, and what do we do when, we're, when they're at odds with one another? The Republican voter has told you loudly and clearly they don't want things to be like they were. They don't want speakers elected in the middle of the night because Pfizer had a fundraiser and, and you know, Raytheon can tolerate this guy. That's what the Republicans have said. 58% of Americans believe the, 26, excuse me, the 2020 election is questionable. The, the word the media uses a lot is stolen because nobody wants to say stolen. How do you prove that? I can't. So you're a liar. No, I'm not. I'm not a liar. We'll prove it. I can't. But, but if I say, man, I don't trust what happened in 20, you, you leave yourself, and I've told you, you leave yourself some wiggle room. Right, Josh? I mean, it, we, 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 we don't ever back ourselves completely in a corner. I learned that in politics. You got to give yourself a little bit of maneuverability. And I think, say, in the election, we, we all have a right to question what happened. The Democrats had a right in 16, and they did. But they, they very emphatically questioned the, the election. I mean, they, you know, they want to change electors. Hillary Clinton publicly said, I don't think Donald Trump's the, the duly elected president. I mean, she said that. Now, now CNN said, that's okay, because Trump's bad. I mean, the, the, the shallowness of the debate. But back to the speaker's race. If the Republican voter has a revolutionary and um, contrarian mindset, the party should reflect that. And, and I think the reflection of the misalignment or the asymmetrical relationship that I argue, Drew argues, Drew McKissick argues, there is a pretty significant misalignment. Voters here, elected officials there. I argue it is asymmetrical. And the reason I argue is a lot of Republicans get chastised for supporting someone who questions the outcome of the 2020 election when the majority of Americans question the outcome of the 2020 election. A high percentage of Republicans question uh, the outcome of the election. The 52% of independents. I mean, you, you could say the majority of independent voters, non-affiliates, question the outcome of the 2020 election. Well, that's because Trump yelled and screamed. And, you know, and I go back to the Democrat friend of mine I'm texting with. He believes the Republicans are making a big mistake by not exhibiting the ability to cohesively govern. To me, they're doing exactly what their voters want them to do, and that is to change the norm, effectively address the status quo that we believe, and I think as a, as a Republican, I can say this, that we believe sold our interest down the river. And, and America First is kind of centered on this. I mean, it is an anti-China party. It is an anti-interventionist party. Is it, a, it is a, an anti-globalist um, party. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, and people like Bill Kristol, are still trying to say it's careless and reckless and irresponsible to elect someone who questions the outcome of the 2020 election. And my argument is it's not you're not serving the interests of the voters if you don't. If 73% of Republican voters believe that something happened in 2020 that can't be explained, why would you elect a speaker that says nothing to see here? But that further exacerbates the asymmetrical relationship that the voters have with the elected officials. If you can find a guy 
that, that says, look, I, I don't know whether the election was stolen or not, but I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of concerns. There were things that happened. I get COVID. I get the pandemic. I get, you know, drop boxes and unsolicited. I understand. I understand we changed the rules and we changed them because we had a pandemic and people were freaked out and, you know, they wanted to vote in different sorts of ways. But, but questioning the outcome of the 2020 election is not a fringe position. The media portrays it as a fringe position, but it's very much in the mainstream of the Republican primary voter and in the mainstream of the American people in general. Stolen is the word you get tricked into buying into. Stolen, and that's Trump's fault. I mean, that, that's Donald Trump's fault. The election was stolen. Was it? Prove it. Has he been able to? I mean, G- Gina Ellis read a letter yesterday saying, I'm sorry, I lied, and I don't ever want to be a part of that liar again, life again. I mean, that's part of her punishment for saying the election was stolen. And now she's a, you know, I think that's a misdemeanor. I think she was charged with pleading, you know, pleading down to a charge, a lesser charge. But as part of her punishment, she had to publicly read a letter, you know, that said, I would have read it. I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry. I would have said, you know, I, I'll plead. I'll take my punishment. Yeah, they're punishing her for saying something that she may have believed. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not reading that damn letter. I mean, that, that would have been me to my lawyer. I'm not reading that damn letter. Well, I mean, you know what happens if you don't? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happens, but I'm going to carry my little bit of dignity home with me. I'm not reading that letter. I mean, I, I'll plead, and I understand how the system works, and I don't like it, and I do think something happened, but I'm not reading that letter as somewhat of a, um, I mean, that's, that's bootlicking. I mean, that's ass-kissing. I mean, that's all that is. That's the establishment putting a hide on the wall saying, hey, here's somebody who said the election was stolen, and we're going to give them a letter to say they apologize for saying the election was stolen. And, um, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just, that's the status quo winning. That's the establishment winning. That's the elites getting, getting their way. But, but to say that electing a speaker who denies or questions the outcome of the 2020 election is an extreme position is insanity. Because they are a reflection of the voters of their party, and the voters of their party question the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. You're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, it was a rough day for Trump yesterday uh, in the courtrooms. Um, you wouldn't have read that letter that she, she wrote. No, I just said I wouldn't have. Okay. Like, but, but what if what she's saying she truly believes? Well, then why did she say that, something she didn't believe? Because she said in the letter, knowing now what I didn't know then, I would have never worked for Donald Trump. She has every, I, well, she has every right to say that. Yeah, I, I I'm not saying she shouldn't have read the letter. You're 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 misconstruing what I said. Right. I'm saying I wouldn't have read the letter because I had questions about the election, and I still have questions about the election. I don't think the election was on the up and up, and I'm not going. I, I can't I can't speak for her. She may have had a road to Damascus moment where she saw a bright light and something changed in her soul. I mean, I, I don't know why she read the letter. All I can say is I would not have read it because I don't feel any differently today about the election than I felt, you know, uh, the week after. And, and that's, that's good, but it, do you think you know everything she knows? 
I'm sure I don't. Okay. Do you think she's aware now of things she wasn't aware of when she took the I, job? I have no idea. So that's that's what we're getting to now, right? Like Mark Meadows, they offered him an immunity deal. He didn't turn on Trump. Like people are portraying that like um, uh, Mark Meadows flipped. He did not flip. He can't be prosecuted for the information, and it can't be used against him that he sh- had to share with the grand uh, jury in in New York in D.C. So that's that's a different animal than what's going on in Georgia. So Mark Meadows shared information that they offered him immunity. Whatever you tell us, we can't use against you in prosecution. And have you read what he's kind of saying? I've read some of what he said, but what what are we getting yeah. to? What what is what is Trump guilty of? I mean, I, I'm He's told guilty. over and over by so, the media he is a threat to democracy. How? Okay. So so do you believe it would be a threat to democracy? Hey, Jeff, can you hang on? Because I, I, I don't, I don't, sure, I don't yeah, sure. we, we'll take a break. i got to pay some bills. Josh yeah. is giving me yeah. that look. And I wanna, but, but when we get back, the floor is yours. Back in just a couple of minutes. The, the point I'm trying to make, and I want to get back to Jeff, the point I'm making, because I want to make sure we're arguing the merits of what my suggestion is. The point I'm making is... The media and some Republicans are arguing that electing a denier, I mean, that's their word, not my, a denier is a radical, radical place for the Republican Party to be and out of the mainstream. The polling shows different. I mean, the polling shows the majority of Americans, when asked, not was the election was stolen, what, but rather, do you, do, you, do you question the accuracy of what happened in 2020? The majority of Americans say yes. The overwhelming majority of Republicans question the outcome of the 2020 election. If you elect a speaker that is consistent with that point of view or perspective, to me, you're doing the job of a political party. You're representing the interest of the people who vote with an R beside their name. That's the, I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make. And, and, and once again, the media, I'm looking on Twitter now. A lot of Republicans are saying, how dare you elect a guy so out of the mainstream? It's not out of the mainstream. It's out of the mainstream on CNN, New York Times, NBC, ABC, Ivy League institutions. But in regular working day America, there are more that have serious questions about the election than not. And a speaker should reflect that consensus of not, not just the primary voters, but the American public in general. It's not a fringe position. Let's go to the phone. Jeff, you still there? Yes, I am. Uh, but have you also just, just about the polling, right? You've also read the polls where majority of Republicans believe Trump did something wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've said that. I think Trump okay. mishandled classified information. I think Trump probably thwarted an investigation. And, and the majority of Republicans believe he broke the law. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I've just said I think he mishandled there, classified information. Right. So, uh, and, but that's a, that's a side point about polls, right? You can take all the polls you want. Uh, doesn't mean that's how you should run your life, right? We don't like politicians that just follow polls, do we? I like politicians that follow polls about what their voters think. Okay, but moral compass-wise, that's not necessarily what you're looking for. Well, I mean, you're, you're basically arguing that the Republicans don't have any morality, and you do. 
because you believe something no. and they believe something different, and that's an arrogant, egotistical position, but that's where most okay. liberals well, land. That's, that, that's a nice leap, but no, I didn't, I didn't say person. I said, a, I said politician, not a party. Like if, 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 if the politician is paid. reflective of the views of the majority of his voters, to me, that is an honorable position to hold, no matter what CNN says, no matter what the New York Times. That's the most courageous stance a politician can take when he's out you're, of the mainstream of the power close. brokers, but rather in step with the uh, constituency. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting real close to saying we should have uh, direct uh, democracy and not electoral. Uh, I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> now you're putting war. That, that's that's you creating something. You just did that to me. No, you, but, but I mean, Jeff, when you call you, you, it's word salads. It's word games. It's it's what ifs and what about isms. Uh, what, what do you believe? Okay, so you don't see the parallel that that. That, uh, I, you, the, I'm, I'm the, not the here to answer questions. This is not an interrogation okay. right. or a deposition. Right. I mean, what, what does Jeff okay. believe? Uh, so, so Jeff believes that there is a there is a majority of Republicans who are dismayed, uh, have concerns about the direction of their party. Um, that Trump, in his leadership has uh, pushed forward people who don't necessarily have America's best interests at heart. And I'll say this, what my point with what did Jenna Ellis read and what did Mark Meadows tell the government, if you said, talking about why you wouldn't read it, do you, if there is a belief that Trump, A, had facts that he ignored, and continued to push his election denying against the counsel of the White House lawyers. Mark Meadows apparently told him he was wrong. Um, he he found people, Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, who would do his bidding against the wishes of the American electorate, according to his advisors, his lawyers, his chief of staff, everybody, do you not think that that is a disqualifying trait in a person to be president? No. So not at all. He would lie. To me, that's he more of a qualifier. And, okay, so that he would lie and try and overthrow a duly elected president of the United States is not disqualifying in your mind. That's not the question before us. It is, the, but it is the question. That is absolutely so not Meadows, the question before us. So you're, you're, you're speculating. So Meadows, I mean, you're 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 suggesting okay. things that you don't know to be true, and you're asking hypotheticals that are completely unfair. You said you, you said something a second ago. You, you said that you believe Donald Trump does not have the best interests of America at heart. I mean, you, you said that. I think that there are Republicans who believe that. Okay, but but you believe that the others do. So, uh, again, to I mean, my you, point, you believe that Mark Joe Biden Meadows, genuinely has the best interests of the American people at heart. Do, do, I, do I believe that Joe Biden uh, cares about American people? Sure. Do I believe Donald Trump cares about American people? I do. But I do believe Donald Trump, according to Mark Meadows, ignored the facts. According to Jenna Ellis, knowing what she knows now, 
she realized that she was lying to the American people. According to the White House legal counsel, Pat Cipollone, Hirschman, all the way down to Cassidy Hutchinson, Republicans, lifelong, highly um, decorated Republicans, all say are saying the same thing. Is it disqualifying in your mind? No. If because because I suspect I suspect government coercion. I suspect the heavy hand of government. I expect government investigators and lawyers and attorneys at the DOJ to say, you know, either you do this or else. I mean, that's what I think happens, and I think you've got to be incredibly naive to not believe that would be what happened. When they sit down with somebody and they make considerations about what to do or what not to do, um, are you sure you want to go there? Are you sure you want to do this? There's this deal we'll make, and as part of this deal, uh, you, you got to say this, you got to read this, you got to you got to testify to this, you got to be a witness to this. I mean, it, surely you don't believe that the government's not leaning on these people to create a story consistent with their narrative. What they offered Mark Meadows was not a plea deal. But I mean, you believe the DOJ is in pursuit of the truth? Uh, do, do you believe that they're? In or the are they of trying to keep Trump off the ballot? I mean, so you, you want to make it political, but sometimes criminals are just criminals. But, but look, uh, no, Jeff, stop that. Th- stop trying to say this is not political. I mean, you, I mean you, you're a smart guy. I've, you I, I've talked to you enough what to know you that you, you're a smart guy. There's no way you believe that this is not political. Okay, so is he a politician? Yes. Is Robert Menendez a politician? Yes, he is. Is he guilty? Did he do the crimes? Yes, he did. Sometimes politicians commit crimes. Let's not act like it's uncommon to have a politician do things wrong, right? I I don't think I've ever said that. I I don't think I've ever said. I think I've said before that I think Trump broke the law. I can't be any more clear than that. I think Trump broke the law. I don't think what he did rises to the level of the political persecution he's had to endure. But you don't know what they know. I don't. You're right. I don't. You don't either. You you don't know what his hand-picked employees know that are now saying, knowing what I know now, I would have never gone along with this. And we're in the process of trying to find out, right? Let them, right? I mean, have his day in court. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Let's investigate everybody as thoroughly as needed to find out who did what. That includes Donald Trump. That includes Joe Biden. That includes uh, Menendez. That anybody. I mean, Jordan, whomever is in powerful positions within our government need to be thoroughly vetted no matter what party they're part of and no matter what their interests or where their interests lie. And and, And so just to go to, you saw what happened in Michigan this last week, right? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I know the football team stealing signals. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a given. <laughs> um, but uh, some of the uh, alternative slates of electors have uh, pled guilty. Okay. They pled guilty, and they have said, we were misled. We were handed blank documents. They recorded this, by the way. You think electors recorded- have ever been misled before by politicians? Um. When they were told that they weren't going to be used unless the legal cases were bore out, and they were handed a blank piece of paper and that they signed, 
And then those pieces of papers were put onto documents that they didn't see. Well, now we're starting to look at the same thing that happened there, happened in Georgia. Those people have pled guilty. You know, so do you see if, if, and I'm saying if, Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and his team conspired, put together a plan, duped these state electors, these, these alternate slates of electors, into participating in this and then proceeding with a plan to submit that to the government to jeopardize the duly elected president from being seated. Is that a crime? The courts will decide. But I'm asking your opinion. Well, I mean, you don't. I, but I'm but not, you're, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to answer that either. question. That's a gotcha question. And I mean, I know what you're doing, but but I'm not going to play that game. I mean, you, you're asking hypothetical subjectives, and I don't play hypothetical subjective unless I'm asking the question. I'm not <laughs> answering that question it, because that's an yeah. absurd way to get there. Let me ask you this, and then we got to go. So sure. when, when, sure. when, when, when Democrats repeatedly asked for different slates of electors and they conspired, to try and figure out a way for these electors to not vote for Donald Trump, but rather for Hillary Clinton, where's the investigation into those politicians? How far did that plan get? No, no, no. Well, where, where is We don't know because we never investigated. When Hillary Clinton and about six or eight named Democrats asked electors to not do, not do um, the job of an elector in voting for the candidate that won the primary, and that's on the record. We know Democrats said that over and over and over again. We know they conspired in state governments with slates of electors to try and get them to change their vote, to try and get electors replaced with ones that would change their vote. Where was the investigation? Yeah, so I'll just say this. Petitioning somebody to change their mind and duping somebody into participating in your crime are two different things. You know what I think, Jeff, and we got to take a break. I think you're so concerned that you can't beat him fair and square in 2024 Dude, that done. you're trying to figure out a way to get him off the ballot. That's my. That's he's what done. I interpret your comments to mean. We didn't beat him in 16. Maybe we beat him in 20. I don't think we can beat him again in 24. So let's do everything in our power to stop him from being the nominee. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate hey. it. No, but that, that's my. I mean, that, that's where I think the majority of Democrats are. There's a sense of a panic. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're they're painting these hypothetical, theoretical pictures. I've always said Trump's not above investigation. I mean, I, you know, I am a MAGA Republican. I'm unapologetically America first. I, I can intellectually rationalize why I believe in the America first agenda. But I'm not a sunshine pumper. I'm not a guy that says, hey, he skates no matter what he did because he's the leader of our movement. I mean, that sounds too much like a liberal Democrat. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a few. On the best campaign, you can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He's an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice presidential candidate? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election. 
and he was put into office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally elected, is not legitimate. I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be a legitimate president. The one thing that Trump is fearful of uh, when it comes to his being president is that finally we will see how illegitimate his victory actually was. I have an objection. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. I object because people are horrified. He's an illegitimate president. Do you believe Trump is a legitimate president? What I believe is that there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by the Russian interference. There absolutely is a cloud of illegitimacy. So that legitimacy is in question, yes. So that was a very tainted election. And and in that sense, it's illegitimate. Why do you think the president is going to such great lengths to essentially prove that he beat you? Because he knows he didn't. He knows he's an illegitimate president. Stolen emails. Stolen drone. Stolen drone. Stolen election. Welcome to the world of unprecedented Trump. So do you believe President Trump is an illegitimate president? Based on what I just said, which I can't retract. <laughs> the Russian attempt to, ha to have the election, and frankly, the FBI's uh, weighing in on the election, I think make the, make, makes his election illegitimate. There was a widespread understanding that this election was not on the level. We still don't know what really happened, Isaac. I mean, there's just a lot that I think will be revealed, history will discover. But you don't win by three million votes and have all this other shenanigan stuff going on and not come away with an idea like, whoa, something's not right here. The outcome of the election was affected by their interference. And now we need to know, you know to what degree, uh, if any, the Trump campaign was actually in collusion with the uh, with, so with Russia. He knows he's an illegitimate president. So of course he's obsessed with me. and. I believe that it's a guilty conscience. We actually won the last presidential election, folks. They stole the last presidential election. And Al Gore won that election. I think he won it anyway. Actually, I think <laughs> I carried Florida. Bush versus Gore. A court took away a presidency. If all the votes were counted in Florida, that Al Gore would be president today and George Bush would be back in office. I come from Florida where you and others participated in what I call the United States coup d'etat. There's no doubt in my mind that Al Gore was elected president. I rise to object to the fraudulent 25 Florida electoral votes. I must object because of the overwhelming evidence of official misconduct, <laughs> deliberate the fraud, chair, and an attempt the to chair suppress must remind It is signed by myself on behalf of my diverse constituents and the millions of Americans who have been disenfranchised by Florida's inaccurate vote count. The Supreme the, uh, Court, not the is, people of the United the, States, decided this election. Speaking to a Democratic group in Chicago Tuesday, he made it clear he thinks Al Gore was the winner. By the time it was over, our candidate had won the popular vote, and the only way they could win the election was to stop the voting in Florida. Catherine Harris, Jeb Bush, Jim Baker, and the Supreme Court hadn't tampered with the results Al Gore would be president. The yeah, Supreme yes. Court elected the president. Al Gore won the state of Florida in 2000, although not the presidency. But the Supreme Court answered? That's a large charge. The Supreme Court stopped the counting of the votes, and if they let the count go on, Al Gore would have got the necessary votes. The Supreme Court selected George W. Bush 
as the president. He was not elected. There is overwhelming evidence that George W. Bush did not win this election. What I observed uh, as a voter, as a citizen of Illinois, uh, four years ago were troubling evidence of the fact that not every vote was being counted. I don't think that George W. Bush won the election uh, in 2000. I guess that'll go because I, th I think that he probably lost Florida and also that nationwide. If you invite me back on this show in about eight weeks, I think you're going to learn that Al Gore actually did get all the votes there. You know, it, it goes on forever. I mean, every prominent Republican, excuse me, every prominent Democrat under the sun has made that charge. I mean, these are DNC chairman. He's a member of Congress. These are trying to invalidate slates of electors, contesting electors. The in word stolen, states. I heard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, illegitimate, stolen. I mean, the absurdity of the process. In other words, we're having an investigation into a guy that is not based on legal merit. It's a political persecution. I mean, if it were to stop the peaceful transfer of power, where are the investigations on the members of Congress who did exactly the same thing in contesting and challenging slates of electors. It's not a legal matter. It's a political matter. And the DOJ is not a truth-seeking organization, but rather a political action committee. And, and, and the scary part of this, uh, there, there's about six more minutes. The, the really concerning part of the, uh, the five minutes and six seconds we just played of a 12-minute, 29-second video is it's hard to tell the members of the Democrat Party from the media. I mean, when you really, when you <laughs> really, I mean, they're, they're on all these shows yeah. and all these reporters. John Meacham is a globalist and an elitist. You've got, you know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me how they all sing off the same sheet of music. It's almost like everybody got the email. And when a Democrat says something about illegitimacy, the media parrots that claim in concert. When they change the word illegitimate to Russian interference, it's almost like they get the play called at the exact same time. Um, I mean, it, it, I would say Michigan stealing their signals, but it's so obvious what they're doing. So when you listen to five minutes and six seconds, I mean, if you turn away, it would be hard to decide, okay, who are the journalists? And who are the Democrats? I mean, I get the Democrats doing their politicking. I mean, I understand that. You lost an election to George W. Bush. You thought he was dumb. You lost an election to Donald Trump. You thought he was dumb and outlandish. Uh, and you didn't want to accept the losing. It, it can't be that your ideas suck. I mean, it can't be that people are frustrated and bothered and, and fed up with the way you see the world. It's got to be something else. But because once again, the, the, the modern liberal, and I'm not saying every Democrat. The modern liberal believes in every example they have the moral and intellectual high ground. And if you can't lift yourself up, if you can't bring yourself to conclude what they've concluded, then you're just not worthy of consideration. So, so when you hear the media and the Democrats, I mean, it's almost like the Bee Gees. I mean, the BGs sing this three-part harmony. They're in harmony, it, aren't it they? It was angelic. I mean, it really was. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 guy that said he first heard the Eagles, nothing special here until he heard the five-part harmony, and then he said, "Okay, I get it now." Well, I mean, it, it's almost like they're singing a duo together, and they're in perfect concert with one another. Uh, meet the press, uh, face the nation. This week with George Stephanopoulos, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the American Foreign League, uh, the Cato. It's just so. It's, it's so outlandishly ridiculous to suggest that the criminal 
punishment, trying to be levied against Donald Trump is not politically motivated. And some of those sound bites that we just played were speeches on the floor of Congress sure. by elected representatives when they were denying the electors. They said they're not legitimate. And they were were they trying to keep a duly elected president from being sworn into office the, to use Jeff's example? They're they're contesting and trying to replace slates of electors. I expect liberal nuts to go on meet the press and say ridiculous things because that's their safe space. I mean, they know that the majority of the people in that organization feel the same way they do. So, you know, I mean, you know, hug your teddy bear and go meet the press and everybody sings kumbaya. And, uh, but no, when you go on the floor of Congress as a member of Congress and you say, you know, um, I contest the placing of these electors and I want these electors replaced, where was the investigation? There should be no investigation of what somebody says on Meet the Press. There should be no investigation of what somebody says on the campaign trail. But some of these pronouncements were made in the halls of Congress by sworn-in members of Congress. Where was the investigation? We'll talk tomorrow.